Well, good morning to all of you. I know uh, quite a few of you because I've been speaking at men's retreats and, and coming here on and off for about 16 years. I think, I think that's right. And, uh, and this church has a special place in my heart uh, as, a, as a new pastor. Uh, Tom Leake took me under his wing. He had pity on me. He said, that poor man doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> I'll show him the ropes. And, and he did. He was a huge encouragement to me and uh, inviting me to come up here and to, and to minister and, and serve in different ways. And I've been able to build relationships with some of you. And, and it's neat to see you every few years. So I'm just so thankful. Um, I'm especially thankful now that God's called Pastor Tom home and he's handed the reins over to faithful men and then to see new faces each time I come up and to see the church growing and thriving is, is such a blessing to my soul. Uh, that speaks well of the leadership who has handed off the baton. So praise God for that. And I believe your best days are ahead of you. As you desire to glorify God with this church through your life, uh, the best days are ahead. Well, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at verses uh, 36 through 46 in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, most of us know that one of the great blessings of the Christian life is answers to prayer. And that means that we seek to pray in a way that honors the heart of God, and then God answers our prayers we have asked and it just thrills our soul when he does that. Um, I think of this church starting in Tom Leake's living room so many years ago and to where it is today, uh, that is God answering prayer, right? That's, that happened on the backs of so many answers to prayer. I know in our own church on Wednesday night prayer meeting, very often people raise their hand and just say, yeah, I just like to tell you a specific answer to prayer that God has given in my life. We've had people over the years that we have uh, disciplined and, and, and put out of the church. And you think in your mind, I'm never going to see that person again. And then a few years later, you get a phone call. They, they, they come in and, and they're full of repentance. Your prayers have been answered. They stand before the people. They're restored to the fellowship. And you're thinking the only way this could happen is the power of God through answered prayers. I remember years ago, one of our elders was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, we, we all prayed, God, God, would you heal this, this elder? But we often know how these kind of sicknesses and, and diseases go. And this particular elder goes back to the doctor and gets his scan, his x-ray. And the doctor thinks he has the wrong scan, the wrong x-ray, <laughs> because he's completely cancer-free. And this, this man, is no longer an elder. He's quite elderly now, but he is with us to this day. And those are the things you hang on to. And you just realize that God loves and delights in answering the prayers and the requests that we, we make known to him. But we also know that a big part of the Christian life is unanswered prayer. And what I mean by that is, maybe there's a better way to put it, but the idea that the fact that God says no. So at the very least, he says no for the time being, or maybe he says no for the rest of your life. And we often call that unanswered prayer because I've made my request known to God. And as of now, he hasn't granted me my, that request. And I think this can be especially burdensome, especially when you're praying for things like an unsaved child, 
a, a spiritually dead, harsh spouse, a chronic illness. I mean, probably many of us have been in the situation where you pray for something and it seems like the more you pray for that thing to go away and get better, it actually gets worse. And that's especially hard to see. I know in our church or the individuals that struggle with chronic illness, it's just so hard. You, you pray, God, just, just give them some relief and, and it just continues. And it's very difficult. And, and we know that there are churches out there that say, well, if you just have enough faith, right? If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed or you'll, you'll get a blank check. You'll get whatever you want or you've just used this particular technique. And not only is that a twisting of the scripture, I think it's rather cruel to say that to Christians because it does not give believers a category for unanswered prayers. And as Christians and believers, we need a category for when God doesn't answer our prayers. When God, for whatever reason, says, no, I'm not going to grant that. And I I know I find it comforting, maybe you'll find it comforting that there are many great men and women in the Bible who were marked by, or at least had in their life, unanswered prayer. You have in Acts chapter 4, you have the early church getting together, praying in that prayer meeting, God, take note of their threats, take note of their persecution. A few chapters later, James is beheaded. (laughs) Doesn't feel like the answer to prayer that we were looking for. 2 Samuel 12, what does David pray for? The life of his newly born child, and the child dies. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times Paul prays, God, let this thorn in the flesh go away, take it from me. And God does not take it from him. My grace is sufficient for you. In Exodus chapter 34, to me that's an amazing account where God's getting ready to judge Israel And Moses says, God, will you kill me as an atonement for their sins? Will you take me instead of them? And God essentially says, no, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. Or what about Job? Job starts with Job praying for his children. And chapter one ends with all his children dead. How's that for an answer to prayer? But all those men that I've mentioned are men in the Bible marked by godliness, marked by faith, who at some point in their life made a request to God with all their soul, and God did not answer that request. Well, this morning, I want us to look at Jesus in Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is a prayer meeting where Jesus is going to pray and make his request known to the Father, and the Father is not going to grant him that request. But what's amazing about Gethsemane is when all is said and done, Jesus emerges from Gethsemane with renewed strength for the fire of the cross. You wouldn't expect that in Gethsemane. Nothing about Gethsemane looks like it would give Jesus strength for what he was going to encounter on the cross, but that's exactly what happens. And I think what makes Gethsemane even more interesting is Gethsemane comes on the heels of the high priestly prayer. 
Just a few hours earlier, he prayed the high priestly prayer and every detail, praise God, of the high priestly prayer is answered in the affirmative by the Father. That's where our salvation is secured. So he goes from this high priestly prayer meeting where the Father says yes to everything to Gethsemane where the Father says no, which has got to be quite the whiplash. (laughs) Well, wait a second. The Father who says yes is now the Father who's saying no. And that's what Jesus is going to experience. So just to remind you of the context, Jesus has just finished the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He and his disciples are headed to Gethsemane. He tells them, you're all going to abandon me. Peter, you're going to deny me. And all the disciples vehemently resist this prophecy. There's no way this is going to happen. Of course, Peter, uh, threefold, there's no way I'm going to deny you. And so all the disciples sort of march forward with Jesus to Gethsemane with fleshly confidence, which is never the way to go about it. With this fleshly confidence to Gethsemane, And then look at verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So they're coming to Gethsemane. Gethsemane is taken from the Hebrew word Gethsemanim. It means press of oil. It was a a, a garden uh, where they would have olives, where they would make oil. So it was a olive oil garden, not to be confused <laughs> with the restaurant, very, very different place. And here they would make olive oil for the purpose of lamps and, and lotions and, and cookings and cooking and, and various things. But very often in Jerusalem proper, these gardens were private gardens. They weren't just open to the public. And so they would have high stone walls and they would actually be locked So most likely Jesus knew the person who owned this garden. This person would allow Jesus to kind of escape there and to pray to his heavenly father. And so that's what Jesus, of course, wants to do here right before the cross. And he enters into Gethsemane. And this becomes the great and incredible event of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. S. Lewis Johnson said, if the cross was the thunderstorm, then Gethsemane was the first sheet of rain. Scholars refer to the cross as Passio Maxima, the maximum pain, and Gethsemane as Passio Magna, the great pain, the great suffering. So Gethsemane would produce in Jesus a suffering that was only seconded by the cross. What takes place in Gethsemane, as Jesus will confess, he is grieved to the point of death that's going to drive him to the brink of death. This incredible event. I love what Edersheim says. Edersheim is a a a converted uh, Messianic Jew. And he compares Gethsemane to the Garden of Eden. He says... Gethsemane is the other Eden in which the second Adam, the Lord from heaven, bore the penalty of the first and in obeying gained life. Jesus is the second Adam in this second garden where he undoes the work of the first Adam in his first fall, in the first condemnation. 
So Gethsemane is just rich with theological significance here. Now notice what Jesus says here at the end of verse 36. He says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So I want you to stay here. I'm going to be over there praying and you stay over here. So they're kind of together. And as we're going to see, he, he wants them close by because he wants them praying with him. But at the same time, he's not right with them. He's going to be a few yards away because what Jesus has to do is engage in this, in this intense, mind-blowing prayer with the Father. And it is a journey that he is going to have to do alone. There's a real sense in that what Jesus is going to do he has to do separate from his disciples. He has to do this journey alone. One commentator said he was very alone. The whole world was against him. Jerusalem, panting for his life with passionate hate, tens of thousands from the provinces turned from him in disappointment. And so Jesus has to feel in this moment the intensity of what he has to do. He has to do alone and all by himself. But he wants the disciples there. And he wants them to pray with him. So it seems that if you put the gospels, different gospels accounts together, it seems that he leaves about eight of his disciples probably at the entrance. And he journeys deeper into the garden with Peter, James, and John. He goes deeper to pray. Look at verse 37. And Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I'm sure many of us have experienced grief, but have you ever grieved to such an extent that you thought, I'm not sure I'm going to survive this grief. This grief could kill me. It's so overwhelming. It's so intense. It's so deep. It's pushing me to the brink of death. That is where Jesus is. But of course, you always feel a little bit uncomfortable when you make that comparison because the grief that he is experiencing is is nothing like the grief that we experience. And so after he expresses this grief to the point of death, he then finishes off verse 37, remain here and keep watch with me. I'm grieving. Stay here and keep watch with me. What does he mean? Pray with me. I'm grieving to the point of death. Pray with me. What is Jesus doing? He's bringing these two realities in close proximity to each other. I'm grieving to the point of death, and I want you to pray with me. Why? Because Jesus actually wants to draw strength from the disciples' prayer. In his divine nature, he needs no help. But he has become, he has taken on to his divine nature, full humanity. And in his human nature, he can be strengthened by the prayers of his disciples. That is what is going on here. It's an amazing thing to think about. Jesus is telling his disciples, pray with me, keep watch with me. Why? Because I'm grieved to the point of death. What does that have to do with anything? Because I want your strength. I want you to strengthen me for the task ahead. Hendrickson says, just as Jesus was in need of food and sleep, he was in need of human support in this great hour. Just as the human nature of Christ would need food and sleep, the human nature of Christ needed intercessory prayer from his brothers in the Lord. That tells you something about the power of intercessory prayer, doesn't it? 
I trust you are a praying church. I trust that as you're on the go and God brings names and, and fellow members to your mind, I, I trust you pray for them. I love to hear in your congregational prayer, praying specifically by names for sheep in this congregation who are suffering, who are grieving, who are now at home with the Lord. I mean, that is a privilege and a grace that's been given to the church to faithfully pray for one another. You see this all throughout the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, brethren, pray for us. Paul was not this, you know, lone ranger. I got it. I don't need your prayer. Pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Philemon 22, at the same time also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. If I get out of this prison, Paul says, it's through your prayers. It's because you've been praying for me. Philippians 1.19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the bread and butter of the Christian life of local churches. You pray for one another. So here's Jesus in Gethsemane. And it's mind-blowing to think that the disciples could have had a hand in strengthening the man, Christ Jesus, for the fire of the cross. They could have had a hand in that, and he needed it. You look back at verse 38, he's grieved to the point of death. Verse 39 Back to our text in Matthew 26, he, he falls to the ground and prays. I think if you look at the parallel passages, it's like this, this great weight of contemplating the wrath of God is just crushing down on him, and he, he falls to the ground under its load. And of course, we know Luke talks about his sweat was like great drops of blood. Not just drops of blood, like great drops of blood that medical condition we know is hematidrosis, where under great duress, blood capillaries in your flesh bursts and under strain, blood and mingled with sweat comes out of your pores. Can you imagine being under that kind of strain? And so, of course, watch with me, pray with me, he's saying to his disciples. Now, it's at this point that the enemies of Christ look back at this account and they say that Jesus makes a rather subpar martyr here. <laughs> there was 2nd century Celsius. There was 4th uh, century Julian, enemies of Christianity. They would look at Jesus and, and see his wailing and his crying, his eventual request, let this cup pass from him. And, you know, he's not the greatest of martyrs. And, and they would start to compare him to Socrates. Well, look at a Socrates. Well, he, he takes the cup of hemlock and look at his poise unflappable, unflinching, strong, without batting an eye. He takes that hemlock. He knows why he's been sentenced to death. Why can't Jesus have that poise? Ever hear those arguments? I hesitate to even bring those arguments up because it betrays such an embarrassing ignorance of what Jesus was contemplating. If only all Jesus had to worry about was a cup of hemlock. <laughs> he would have taken 10,000 cups of poison to the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's contemplating. And nobody knows the wrath of God like the Son. God the Son knows the wrath of his Father because he was there when his Father created hell for the devil and his angels. 
He was not only there as the second person of the Trinity, he was the creative means of hell created for the devil and his angels. I believe the Son of God was the death angel in Egypt. He is the creative means. So that means every outpouring of wrath in the Old Testament came to fruition through the Son. Nobody knows the wrath of the Father like the Son. And now for the first time, the Son's contemplating being the object of his Father's wrath. And not just a sampling of his Father's wrath, but the full, undiluted wrath of God boiling for sin for all time. And he is going to be the object of that wrath. What martyr has ever contemplated that? (laughs) No martyr has ever contemplated that. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you'll never contemplate that because Christ contemplated it for you. I never have to worry about that. If I could lose my salvation, I'd have to worry about that. (laughs) But because God's given me a perfect salvation, I just never have to worry about the eternal wrath of God because Jesus worried about it in a sense, (laughs) contemplated it in Gethsemane. So Jesus, this is what he's thinking. This is what he's contemplating. And look at verse 39. He begins to make his request known to his father in this state. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father. In the Greek, this is pater. In the Aramaic, it's Abba. It's that affectionate, my father. Now, when he goes to the cross, Eloi, Eloi, my judge, my judge. Father's going to become his judge, but now father's his Abba. So with close relational intimacy, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So what's Jesus' request? Let this cup pass from me. Now, what is Jesus requesting at this point? Is he getting cold feet? I don't know if I want to do this dying for my people thing. All you have to do again is go back to the high priestly prayer. He prayed a few hours earlier. No way. That is why he's born. That's why he's come. What Jesus is specifically thinking about is the element of the father's wrath in dying for his people. That's what he's contemplating. That's what's disturbing the very heart and soul of Jesus, thinking about the cup of wrath. And of course, the cup all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament was this regular metaphor used for the wrath and the judgments of God. Isaiah 51, 17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from the hand, my hand, and cause all nations to whom I send you to drink it. Ezra 23:33. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. So Jesus is simply now referring to the wrath of God as this cup, and he is praying, your will be done if it is possible. Notice that statement, if it is possible. 
That means if there is a way for me to die for my people apart from the cup of your wrath, I'd like to take that option (laughs) because I know like nobody else what your wrath entails. If that is possible, not if it's possible, can I get out of this? But if it is possible to die for my people without drinking from the cup of God's wrath. You know, that's actually a mark of godliness on the part of Jesus. Isaiah 11 describes the Messiah as someone who delights in the fear of the Lord. It is a good thing to fear the Lord. We should, of course, have a healthy fear for the great and mighty Yahweh God that we serve. But once again, Jesus is contemplating something that we should not have to contemplate as believers. He's contemplating the wrath of God that exists outside of salvation. And to fear the wrath of God is a mark of godliness. This is to Jesus's credit, to his character, that he would be so incredibly disturbed and not flippant in the face of the soon outpouring of God's wrath. Well, the most important thing, and I really want you to pay attention to this in verse 39, is that Jesus closes all three requests with that simple statement, not as I will, but as you will. Here's my request. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but, what, but as you will. John Calvin says the request barely leaves Jesus' lips and Jesus immediately subordinates it to the will of the Father. <laughs> it's like his request doesn't even hang out there for very long and he immediately subjects it to the Father because the supreme concern of Jesus is to be pleasing to the Father. And I want to make this point very, very clear. This could be the most important point that's made in this entire text. The concern of Jesus, there is a concern in Jesus that is greater than experiencing the wrath of his father. And that is the concern of walking in the will of his father. He will gladly drink a thousand cups of God's wrath if it means he is walking in the will of his father. If it means he is being pleasing to the father, that's the supreme concern. And that's what he couches every single one of his requests. Not my will, but yours be done because that's why he's come to earth. My my meat is to do the will of my father. That's That's the most important concern, even greater than disturbance at the seat of God's wrath. Now that maps over to us as we pray. And as God does not answer our prayers from time to time or or very often, how does this apply? Let me ask you this question. Is your desire to live out the will of the Father greater than your desire for answered prayer? Is your desire to be pleasing to the Father greater than your desire that God would answer that prayer? God, I've been praying for this. Would you please answer it? But above all, no matter what you do, I'm committed to obedience. I'm committed to walking in your will. Though you slay me, I will trust you. That's the otherworldly commitment of the believer, the true believer. I would love for this to take place. It seems like... It would be pleasing and glorifying to you, but above all, help me walk in obedience no matter what you decide to do.
That is Jesus' spirit. Is that our spirit? Because Jesus is an example of, he's a model of the Christian life. This is faith he has in the Father, delighting in the will of the Father. And we're to have the same. Look at verse 40. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he goes to them, but they are not giving him strength through prayer. They have fallen asleep. So he awakes them and he exhorts them, keep watching. And here he introduces what he's going to say on three different occasions. He's going to introduce us to the idea of watchful prayer. Keep watching. And that's what he's asking. He's asking for them to pray, but he's saying, watch, watch and pray. A very important word. Watch is a defensive word. It means that there's a predator out there. There's an enemy out there. And this enemy is going to take advantage of you unless you are watching out for the enemy and you're praying in watchfulness. So he's telling them there's an enemy lurking and you have to be watching. Now, who is the enemy? Who is the predator? Well, it's very interesting in Luke chapter 22 and verse 53, when the Pharisees come to arrest Jesus, Jesus tells exactly who the predator is. He says to the Pharisees, but to this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Or I think it's a little clearer in the ESV. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, this evil night belongs to you, Pharisees, and also belongs to the power, singular, the power of darkness. God is going to accomplish cosmic redemption, but that doesn't take away from the fact that that night would be the most evil night in human history. In, in, a, in a certain way, that night would be given over to Satan. Satan would move upon the hearts of wicked men, and they would do wicked things to Christ, the wickedest thing to Christ. That night belonged to the powers of darkness, to the power singular of darkness. Now, what did Satan want to do? What was his goal? Well, obviously, with the disciples, his goal was to get them to commit apostasy, abandon Christ. And he was pretty successful with that. They, they all ran into the night. Strike the sheep, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But what was Satan's goal for Christ? What did Satan want to happen to Christ? I think Satan wanted Christ to despair. He wanted Christ to lose hope. Barnhouse says that Satan wanted Jesus to fear that the wrath of his father would eternally separate the father and the son. Craig Blazing says Satan wanted Jesus to think that there was no bottom to the cup of God's wrath. He would take up that cup and he would begin to drink and drink and drink and drink, and there's no end. There's no bottom to the wrath of God. It's just eternal judgment. Satan wants Jesus to think, you do this thing. You go through with it. You obey your father, and it's eternal separation from you. You know the penalty for sin. I mean, if you're thinking that, what else will cause someone to despair? And I think this theory has 
warrant, I think so, because of Psalm chapter 16. Turn, if you will, to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. And it reads, you know, David does this. He's prophesying. It sounds like he's talking about himself. And the next thing you know, he's describing events that have nothing to do with him, have everything to do with Christ. And that's because Jesus is the son of David. And there's this typical, typological relationship. There's this genetic relationship. And that's what happens with Psalm 16. David's talking, but then it's, it's a description of Christ. But it comes as what sounds like a prayer that Christ prays at some point in his life. And many commentators are agreed there's no better place for this prayer to be prayed by the Messiah than in Gethsemane. And I think that makes Psalm 16 incredibly powerful. Could this be the psalm that Jesus prayed as he's under attack by Satan to think that there's no bottom to the cup of God's wrath? Look at verse 7 of Psalm 16. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Oh, even the night of Gethsemane. His mind instructs him. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be, what? Shaken. We know what shaken is. Shaken is to be moved from your foundation. To lose your hope. To despair. God's not going to help me. God's not hearing my prayer. God's not going to rescue me. God doesn't care. That's, that's being shaken. This is Jesus. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. What's Jesus doing here? He's claiming the promises of his Father. You, Father, have told me. You won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. I'm not going to decay in the grave when I'm buried. In contrast, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Can you imagine Jesus laying hold of those promises? I mean, he is staring the accumulating clouds of God's wrath in the eyes, but he looks beyond the clouds. He sees the glory of his exaltation. He sees the throne he's going to be seated in at the right hand of the Father, glorified, magnified, reigning over the world, reigning over the church. And he takes hold of that promise and it causes him to, for the joy set before him, endure the cross and despise the shame so that he can be seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's Jesus doing? He's claiming the promises of his father to endure this satanic onslaught, which is what you and I do, right? (laughs) We go to scripture, we claim the promises to endure the onslaught. This is Jesus' perfect example. Look back at verse 42 of Matthew 26. Jesus went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So the wording's a little different with the second request. It sounds like he knows it's not going to go away unless he drinks it, but he makes his request known. In verse 43, again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Now, why were they sleeping? Don't say because their eyes were heavy. (laughs) There's a deeper reason. 
If you were to go to Luke 22, verse 45, it says, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Their eyes are heavy. They're sleeping because their eyes are heavy from sorrow. So somewhere in between Jesus saying, you're all going to abandon me. And then there's Jesus over in the corner of Gethsemane, weeping and crying out to God. The confusion, the emotional duress, it's in the middle of the night. This cloud of sadness just descends upon them. And they just go to bed. (laughs) They don't take their needs to the Lord in prayer, which is what we should do. Just like the song says, are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Take it to the Lord in prayer. And they don't do that. Their eyes are heavy. They're depressed. They don't know what's going on. And they just go to sleep. But because of that, they don't strengthen Christ in their prayer. And I believe that is why the father had to send an angel to strengthen Christ. Remember that? In Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, it says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. Would the father have had to send that angel to strengthen Jesus if his disciples had been prayer warriors right there for that whole hour praying with him? I don't think so. I think this was to compensate for the lack of strength that he derived from the disciples. Look at verse 43. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So three prayers. Three in the Bible is a sign of completion. Three complete, earnest prayers to the Father. And the obvious answer by the Father is no. You have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Jesus gets his answer. Now, everything basically that I've been saying has led up to this point. I want you to understand the importance of what is about to happen in verses 45 and 46. Look at verse 45. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, this is an intention-getting word of strength. His strength is there. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. It's time, men. The hour is here. Get up. He says in verse 46, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Get up is in the imperative of urgency. You'll often find this statement amongst commanders before their troops. Behold, the time has come. Get up and let's go face the enemy. Even in the English, there's an exclamation point, sort of carrying over the the energy, the strength, the passion of Jesus' words. So what you're seeing here is a refreshed and renewed conviction and strength on the part of Jesus. And you're asking yourself, where in the world did this come from? Because Gethsemane looks like it drained everything from Jesus. But he gets up and with renewed vigor, renewed strength, he awakens his disciples, say the enemy's coming, let's go. And he has strength that carries him through marvelously through everything that he endures. Where does the strength come from? Let me tell you four quick sources of this strength. Number one, he has poured out his soul to the Father. Whenever we go to God in prayer and we pour out our soul, in the end, you will not be depleted. 
you will be strengthened. Number two, the will of the Father had been clarified. And if you love being in the will of God, that's good news. Even if it's not the news you wanted, the will of the Father has been clarified. The answer is no, you have to drink from the cup. Well, Jesus is saying, good thing I delight in the will of the Father. So we have to delight in the will of the Father. But we get strength from clarity that he gives us. A third source is God did strengthen him with the angel, didn't he? How does he strengthen us? Through the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Who would you rather have? (laughs) The Holy Spirit or an angel? I'd much rather have the Holy Spirit. We are strengthened by a greater source than even Christ was at this moment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, Jesus left the prayer meeting resolved to obey. That resolution to obey the Father no matter what is what we call faith. That's a source of strength. That's a great source of strength. Faith. We need to not get off our knees until we are committed to obedience. Too often we get off our knees and say, man, I don't know what I'm going to do if God doesn't answer this prayer. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to, then don't get off your knees until I say, until you say, no matter what, I'm going to obey the Father. No matter where he leads, no matter how he answers this, by faith, I believe that he's good and he's going to cause me to endure. That's when we get off our knees. And that's what we see with Jesus. He gets off his knees, renewed strength, embraces the enemy. And when you watch the trial unfold, you watch the crucifixion unfold, he is like an unflinching granite rock before his floggers, before his accusers. On the cross, he has the strength to entrust his mother to John to dialogue and forgive the thief on the cross. And then ultimately, he yields up his spirit to the Father with a great what? A great cry. There's strength there that that takes. All the strength comes from Gethsemane. It comes from a prayer meeting of unanswered prayer. But our strength doesn't come from the answers. Our strength comes from God, who is good and sovereign and tells us what is good for us. Let me close by reading you an excerpt of a Puritan prayer that I read this week that was just incredibly helpful to me. This anonymous Puritan writes, I thank you that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. Go on with your patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. Purge me from every false desire, every base aspiration, everything contrary to your rule. I thank you for your wisdom and your love, for all the acts of discipline to which I am subject for sometimes putting me into the furnace to refine my gold and remove my dross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to start this closing prayer by praying first and foremost for those who are here this morning who do not know you as the personal Lord and Savior. They have not yet come come face to face with the weight of their sin and their guilt and how desperately they need Christ Jesus, 
and his blood applied to their account to be counted innocent and righteous and forgiven before your judgment throne, Heavenly Father. Would you have mercy on them? Lord, would they even now think of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, and how that is a monument both to our sin and your abundant grace to save me. They call upon you even now so that they can be saved and so they can experience this amazing reality of the power of unanswered prayer. And Lord, for those who are your dear children here this morning, Lord, I know life is full of trials and troubles and difficulties and we cry out to you as you have commanded us to and we bear our soul to you. And so often, Lord, you answer our prayers as we have asked and yet so often you do not. And in our weakness, Lord, we grow discouraged and our prayer life grows weak. We take that as some sort of sign of ineffective prayer, not being at the center of your love. Lord, I pray that you would correct us and correct that thinking. I pray that we would not be discouraged by unanswered prayers. Rather, we would just all the more throw ourselves at your feet and trust you and trust your goodwill. And more than that, help us to emerge from these prayers with the strength that Jesus modeled as he purchased us. In Jesus' name, amen.